I should probably do the guest thing before the break because then she disappears into the bar someplace. <laughs> oh, she's here. Okay, wait. So why am I over Okay. I could have done this already. Okay. Good evening once again. Uh, is that is that the first time we've had cheesecake this year? Oh, strawberries. Okay. Uh, Donna Tui, please come up and uh, tell us about any guests or new members, please. <clears throat> Well, our very special guest is Harry Bull Kelly. Seated at this table here, Harry. Oh. <laughs> and we have Ruth Anderson, who is the wife of Carrie Van Ness. Ruth, okay. Is Cheryl Cook here? No, she didn't. Make, the snow kept her home. Uh, Jane Mussey from the Salt Creek Round Table. <laughs> and let's see, we have a, a few people who have been here before. John Phillips, Don Pison, Dorothy Pison, Jerry Pison, lots of Pisons. <laughs> And Bob Stoller brought two guests, his son Danny. And Steve Stein. Okay, thank you. Oh, by the way, if any of you want to uh, join, the uh, fee for membership is half after February 1st. So think about it. By the way, one travel note, uh, if you if you want to go to Nashville instead of flying into Chattanooga, uh, it's 127 miles from Nashville to Chattanooga, the airfare out of uh, Midway is 136.10 round trip. So if you want to, you want to, you have many plans to get down to Chattanooga, that might be a, a possible way to go. All right, moving on, we have the uh, raffle with uh, the detective. Don't worry, I'm not the prize. <laughs> if I get your number, you're in trouble. 771-885. Keep in mind, we're taking money for the Ed Bars Fund. We try to raise uh, a couple thousand dollars every year for Ed to give to Battlefield Preservation. And we've also got the uh, we've also got the uh, sesquicentennial challenge going on. The Battlefield Preservation Committee is uh, challenging 100 members of the roundtable to come up with $150 by May of next year when we have our symposium, so that we can give $15,000 to one site. We have 19 people signed up. We got it already. 
You took too long. 771-845. So please keep both of those funds uh, in mind. Seven seven one nine five nine. My son Chris Matthews from Alaska. <laughs> And and lastly, seven seven one seven seven nine. Thank you. We raised one hundred and fifty-five dollars tonight for battlefield preservation. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Next uh, next up is the quizmaster himself, Tom Trescott. Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, here's tonight's quiz. One, what was Ulysses S. Grant's real first name? That, of course, was D. Hurlbut. No, it's uh, A. Hiram. <laughs> Two, James Longstreet was, uh, true or false, James Longstreet was Grant's best man at his wedding? That is true. Three, of what battle did Grant write? Has been perhaps less understood or more persistently misunderstood than any other engagement between national and Confederate troops during the entire rebellion? That was Shiloh. Four, who did Grant call the most nearly indispensable man of his military family? That was his chief of staff, C. John A. Rawlins. Five, true or false, Grant paroled Pemberton's surrendered army at Vicksburg as a gesture of goodwill. That's false. He did parole them, but it was a more pragmatic measure. He just wouldn't have to want to deal with all the uh, prisoners. Uh, six, where did Grant arrive on October 23, 1863, wet, dirty, and well, and on crutches as commander of the new military division of the Mississippi? That's where we're going in May, Chattanooga. Seven, Grant survived what near-fatal incident in March of 1864? That's C, a skylight collapsed when he was sitting in Matthew Brady, Brady's studio. Eight, of what battle did Grant say, I regret this assault more than any I've ever ordered? That, of course, he was speaking of Cold Harbor. Uh, nine, true or false, Grant sought a third term as president? That is true. Actually, that was in 1880, after he'd already been out of office. And finally, number 10, what famous author was instrumental in publishing Grant's memoirs? That was Samuel Clemens or Mark Twain. Uh, we had four perfect tens. One was the law firm of Abro and Girardi. Uh, we had two, uh, two of Grant's fellow uh, Union generals, Nathaniel Lyon and George Thomas, who I guess got along with them better than we thought. <laughs> and finally, uh, one more, and uh, shall we all say it together, White Sox Bruce. <laughs> Thank you. It may be time to have a Stump Bruce contest. Uh, our speaker tonight comes to us from the far reaches of the state of Illinois. Uh, Galesburg, Illinois. Harry Bukele is a uh, retired uh, member of the judiciary. He was a judge down that way for 24 years. He uh, started reenacting, uh, as I understand, and came back one day uh, from, I think you portrayed a Confederate at that time, 
and came back and he had had to grow a beard and everybody started calling him U.S. Grant. So uh, he retired, he, he saw fit to retire from the, the bench, which is probably a, always a good thing. And uh, he became a reenactor and he has portrayed U.S. Grant in a number of uh, uh, venues, one of which was the new movie that they made for the Battle of Shiloh, which I think was just premiered or is being premiered uh, next April. And he is portraying U.S. Grant. So let's give a warm welcome to uh, Harry Bukley, please. Man proposes and God disposes. My mother used to say that. Man proposes and God disposes. Or as my friend Samuel Clemens said, if you wanted to make God laugh, tell him your plans. <laughs> and I imagine that God is laughing quite loudly now because my plans, if there were any, certainly did not include my sitting on the bench or on the porch in this cottage in upstate New York in the summer of 1885, uh, writing my memoirs and dying. But that's where I am. I began life in Point Pleasant, Ohio, in a little one-room house about two stone's throws from the Ohio River, about 25 miles upriver from Cincinnati. When I was born, I was given the name Hiram Ulysses Grant. I always went by Ulysses, but my father chose to name me Hiram Ulysses Grant. Shortly after that, my parents moved to Georgetown, Ohio, which is, was really my hometown. I grew up there. Uh, my father ran a leather tanning business. Actually ran it right across the street from our house. I don't know if any of you have ever been involved in the leather tanning business, but it's, it's very unpleasant. Uh, the story is that you will always know a tanner when you meet him, whether he's working or not, and no matter how many times he's bathed. <laughs> I developed during the time that I worked for my father an aversion to blood, which was an odd thing for someone who ended up in my profession, but I guess that's of part of the nature of not planning things. My real love was horses. Uh, my mother always said that I had a special affinity for horses. One time when I was three years old, I was sitting out in the front yard actually sitting under a horse. And uh, the neighbor came running over and said, Ulysses is under a horse, you better do something, Hannah. My mother looked out the window and said, Ulysses and horses understand each other. And she didn't even come out to get me. And, uh, and I guess that's been true my whole life. I have always loved horses. Horses probably in some place sometimes have treated me better than human beings. <laughs> One time, uh, one of my jobs, when I could get away from the tannery, was to drive a team of horses and drive people who needed either to be hauled personally or to have freight hauled around the state of Ohio and Kentucky. And by the time I was 12 years old, I was taking teams of horses and passengers to Cincinnati, uh, to Lexington, Kentucky, to Toledo, Ohio, across the state, um, 
and enjoyed it quite a lot. And one time I was coming back from one of the trips and I uh, found a horse that I really wanted to buy. The farmer wanted $25 for it. Well, I went home and told my father that I wanted to buy the horse. Told him why. And he said, all right, but you go back and offer him $20. And if he doesn't take the $20, then you offer him $22.50. <laughs> and if he doesn't take the $22.50, then you offer him the $25. So I went back to the farmer. Having listened to my father, I said, I'll give you $20 for the horse. That's what my father says I should do. And if you won't take that, I'll give you $22. <laughs> well, you probably know what I bought the horse for. <laughs> One day, my father came home and told me that I was going to attend the United States Military Academy at West Point. I said that I wasn't going to do that. My father said that he believed I was. And if you knew my father, uh, you were right, he was right in his belief. How I got appointed to the military academy was, was an unusual circumstance. Uh, there was a boy who lived up the hill from us who was attending the academy, and after his first year, uh, word got back that he was going to drop out of school. My father heard about this before anybody else knew that there was a vacancy, and he wrote to our congressman, Thomas Hamer, and ask if he would appoint me as to the military academy. Now, you have to know my father to know how hard it was for him to write to Congressman Hamer because they had been fast friends until 15 years before when they had had a falling out over politics and they hadn't spoken for 15 years. But my father, it meant enough to him to have me appointed to the military academy that he wrote to Congressman Hamer and he appointed me. It will probably come as a shock to you in this day and age, but in those days, sometimes congressmen put off jobs that they had to do. <laughs> and he put off appointing, filling out the papers for my appointment until the last day that they were due. And when he was filling them out, he realized that he wasn't sure what my full name was. He knew me as Ulysses Grant, but he didn't know what my middle name was. So he assumed that maybe it was my mother's maiden name, Simpson. So he filled out the papers as Ulysses Simpson Grant, nominated me, and I was accepted. My parents took me down to the Ohio River, near Point Pleasant, right near where I was born, waved down a steamship, and I got on the steamship by myself. I was 17 years old, I was five foot one, weighed 119 pounds. I still had my portmanteau with my initials H-U-G on it. I was never excited about the fact that my name, my initials spelled hug. <laughs> but I enjoyed traveling, and I, this is the farthest I'd ever traveled. I got on the steamboat and I went to Pittsburgh. Being in no hurry to get to the military academy, I took the Pennsylvania Canal across Pennsylvania, as far as Harrisburg. And then I got on a train. I had never traveled on a train before. We traveled 18 miles an hour, and I was convinced that that was the most wonderful and modern form of transportation there could ever be. I got to Philadelphia, still being in no hurry. I explored Philadelphia on my own for a few days. 
got to New York City, explored New York City for a few days, and finally it was time for me to go to West Point. I took a ferry up the Hudson River, got off, and walked up the hill to the registrar's office, where I told him I was Hiram Ulysses Grant from Ohio. And he looked down on his list and he said, we don't have your name on the list. And I could see that he, I said, well, that's me. It's just, that's not my name. And the name isn't Ulysses Simpson Grant. And in my first introduction to the Army, he explained to me that if I was to enroll at the military academy, that was my name. <laughs> I never accepted it for a long time. I wouldn't sign my name, Ulysses S. Grant, for years. In fact, at one point when our second son, Buck, Ulysses Jr., was born, I even asked my wife what, what the S stood for in his name. A military life held no charms for me, and I had no intention of making it my career if I did graduate, which I didn't expect to do. In fact, my first year in, at the Military Academy, there was a bill in Congress to abolish West Point. And I secretly hoped that Congress would pass that bill <laughs> so I could come home without the shame of having quit or flunked out. But they didn't, pa they didn't uh, pass the bill. And I managed to graduate 19th in my class of 39 in the class of 40, 19, 1843. At that point, I was assigned to the 4th Infantry. I, I'll tell you, I'm proud of the fact that during graduation week, uh, there was always a contest, a horse jumping contest. I was given a particularly fractious horse to jump in the competition, and I managed to jump that horse six and a half feet, which stood as a record at West Point uh, for well over a quarter of a century. I was then assigned to the 4th Infantry. I guess that's because I was such a good horseman. <laughs> and was stationed at, sent to St. Louis at the Jefferson Barracks, which is just outside St. Louis. I was there with my, with one of my roommates from my fourth year at the academy, Fred Dent. Fred, Fred and I would go home. His parents lived just a few miles away from Jefferson Barracks, and we would go home we had leave and we would spend time there. Fred's family would feed us much better than the Army did. And life was pretty pleasant. Fred had three sisters, two of whom lived at home. The third was not at home. She was at finishing school in St. Louis, but she came home on occasion. And she was a wonderful girl. Uh, we enjoyed horseback riding together, we enjoyed being outside together, we enjoyed sitting and talking. Julia had a, a slightly crossed eye, it made it difficult for her to read, and the evenings we would pass sitting on her father's porch and I would read to her. Uh, we both enjoyed that. And before long we both discovered that we were in love with each other. But about that time, the Mexican War broke out. Before I left, we agreed that we would be married after we got back, but we kept it a secret from her parents, particularly her father, if you knew him, you would understand why. <laughs> and I, was state, I went to Mexico with the 4th Infantry. Uh, the Mexican War was 
and wicked one as far as I was concerned, but my job was not to determine the morality of the war, but rather to fight it. I was a quartermaster. Uh, my assignment, my duties were to stay behind the lines and to make sure that supplies got up to the fighting forces during the battle, and also to make sure that supplies traveled with the army. Our commander, uh, at least in the first part of the Mexican War, was General Zachary Taylor, old rough and ready. I had a great deal of admiration for General Taylor because he could command men merely by the, the force of his personality. He very rarely wore a full uniform. Often he would go out on the, on the battlefield in, his, in a big straw hat, but he was everywhere on the battlefield. He, he knew everything that was going on on the battlefield, and he could command all the forces under him, and, and with, he was a master at it. But I saw that he could command men without the necessity of lots of fancy things on his uniform. At the Battle of Monterey, uh, my unit was pinned down in the center of the city, and we were running low on ammunition, and they, the commanding officer asked for a volunteer to ride through the enemy lines to get more ammunition. I volunteered. I rode, rode through the streets of Monterey, but to do so, I had to throw one leg over the horse, but hang on to the side of the horse. I had my arms around his neck, with one leg over the back of the horse, uh, rode through the streets. It wasn't too bad until you got to uh, the intersections, and at that point the enemy was firing at me from the side of the horse I wasn't hanging on, but I made it out of town, and we got the ammunition back, and my unit uh, managed to fight their way out. The second part of the Mexican War, as you may know, was fought uh, farther south. It started with a landing in Veracruz and then a march inland to Mexico City. That part of the, the command fell under uh, General Winfield Scott, old fuss and feathers. And then General Winfield Scott's uniform was, he must have taken everything that General Taylor did not put on his uniform, <laughs> and a little bit more, and he wore every possible braid. I had seen General Scott uh, once he came to the academy and, and reviewed the troops, and I remember thinking he was a magnificent figure on horseback, and he was. He was a huge man. but. I still adopted, I think, the, the leadership style much more of General Taylor uh, than, than of General uh, Hancock, or General Scott, rather. As we fought our way across Mexico and into the outskirts of Mexico <coughs> City, we were fighting in the Battle of Molina del Rey. Uh, there were a series of mills and, uh, near Chapultepec. Uh, the battles were fought back and forth through that area. At one point, our troops were under fire uh, by a unit, a Mexican unit, an artillery unit. And it looked to me like the best way to get at them was to take the howitzer that we had up into a church steeple. I knocked on the door of the church. The priest was not willing to let us in. And I suggested that we were going to make entrance, whether he was going to let us in or not, and that he might have a more enjoyable day if he did let us in, <laughs> in which case he did. We uh, went up to the tower, we pulled the howitzer up by rope, reassembled it up in the tower, and were able to uh, draw a bead on the enemy's unit, uh, the enemy's guns, and knock them out, uh, keep them from firing on our units. Why they didn't turn the guns on the tower, I'll never know, because we 
didn't have any protection, and we were just on the top of a church steeple. Uh, it was during that time that uh, our unit was visited by one of General Scott's primary aides, uh, the Captain Robert E. Lee. Um, I remember very well the day he came and visited our unit. I'm not sure that General Lee or Captain Lee uh, remembered that as well as I did. After the war, I came back uh, to Julia. Uh, we were married at her father's home, Whitehaven, uh, outside St. Louis. Uh, it's called Whitehaven, even though, even though it was painted green. Uh, but that was Colonel Dent was like that. He was a, he wasn't really a colonel either. But, <laughs> but he, fancied, he fancied himself a colonel, and he fancied it a plantation, and so that's what we called it, Whitehaven, and uh, that was where we were married. And we, we had a wonderful life in the old army. Uh, we were stationed at Sackets Harbor in New York. We were stationed at Detroit. Uh, we had our first child, uh, Frederick, and we were, I was, we were both enjoying army life. And then I was assigned to go to the West Coast. And that assignment came at the time that Julia was uh, expecting our second child. And I suggested to her that the trip was going to be much too rigorous and dangerous for her to, to go with me. And in fact, it proved to be. The way you, you traveled to the West Coast in those days was you sailed from New York City down to the Isthmus of Panama, which was then part of Columbia. And we, then you had to, you could take a train partway across, then you had to stop and take river boats partway to the lake in the middle of the isthmus. And at that point, you had to walk 25 miles to the coast. These were swamp-infested, malaria-infested, uh, terrible places. And it was my job to get not only the 4th Infantry, but the family members and dependents who had gone with them. There were about 700 people that were under my charge that, that had to make the trip. They started getting sick almost immediately. And by the time we had gotten to the lake in the middle of the isthmus, it was apparent that lots of them weren't going to make it. I ordered as many as could make it to go on ahead. Uh, we, the rest of us, we. I had secured mules. We were supposed to have mules to go with us at $16 a head. And uh, that was what I was authorized to pay for the by the Army. And the, uh, the man from whom I was supposed to get them had sold his mules the day before to someone who had come through in an equally desperate situation and paid $40 a mule for them. <laughs> we, we ended up walking. We ended up burying people along the way in the jungle as they died. And many more died after we got them got to Panama. We lost about uh, one-seventh of all the people that were with us, including every child under the age of two that had traveled with us, um, and many of the women. I was very glad Julia didn't go. I met a Lieutenant Slaughter who was in the Army who was didn't like traveling by sea. I think that the motion of, of a tablecloth if you'd wave that, would have made him seasick. And I saw him on the coast in Panama waiting to catch a boat. And he explained that he had been in New York City and he'd been assigned to San Francisco and he'd made the trip all and crossed the isthmus and sailed. Actually, no, the first time he sailed around the Cape of Good Hope, oh, Cape Horn, the one 
He went up to south, the south end of South America. It took him seven months to sail from New York City to San Francisco. And when he got there, he was informed that he was assigned there by mistake, and he had, to <laughs> sail, he had to sail back to New York City. And when he got to New York City, he was told that, no, indeed, he did have to go to San Francisco, and he had to get on the boat and sail back again. And he told me that, he, he said, I wish I'd listened to my father. He told me to join the Navy, and if I'd done that, I wouldn't have been at sea nearly as much as I was in the Army. <laughs> I finally arrived in San Francisco and was eventually stationed at Fort Vancouver at the mouth of the Columbia River in Oregon Territory. Um, the job wasn't bad, in fact there wasn't much to do. Uh, the, the Indians were at peace, the settlers were coming in, but it was not a particularly difficult assignment. But getting mail was very difficult and it would be months sometimes letters from Julia. Uh, it took me months to even find out that our second son had been born. Almost a year. And every day, every week, every month, every time the mail came in, it, it, it just wore and wore and wore on me. I wrote letters every day. Dear wife, a mail come in this evening but brought me no news from you, nor nothing in reply to my application for orders to go home. I can't conceive of what is the cause of the delay. The state of suspense I'm in is barely, is scarcely bearable. I think I've been away from my family quite long enough, and sometimes I think that I could almost go home without leave. Being away from Julia is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, and away from the boys. And it began to wear on me. Um, I think anybody that served with me in the Army will tell you that I do not hold my liquor very well. Um, several of the officers would tell, tell you that three fingers of bourbon would put me under the table. and. Uh, I'm afraid that there were times when drinking got the best of me as I waited for some word from Julia. And as it, it, it got worse and worse, I eventually got stationed in Fort Humboldt, which is just north of San Francisco, south of Eureka. And it seemed that everybody that was on the West Coast at that time, the, that was the gold rush. And everybody who came out there seemed to be making money hand over fist. Uh, two or three of us had several ideas. We, we planted potatoes one year, and the river overflowed and flooded our potatoes out. One time, we knew that they didn't have ice in San Francisco, so we arranged to buy ice in Alaska and have it sent to San Francisco by ship. And uh, that, there was a lot of money in ice back then. The ship was becalmed about two days out of San Francisco. And by the time the winds picked up again, all the ice had melted. <laughs> they didn't need melted ice in San Francisco. <laughs> Finally, there was one day when I was paymaster and in charge of handing out pay for the men. And uh, my commanding officer accused me of being 
intoxicated that day. And I, it was at that point that I decided that I needed to, I had to leave, I had to get home. March 6th, Fort Humboldt. My dear wife, I've only had one letter from you in three months. And that had been a long time on the way, so you may know how anxious I am to hear from you. I sometimes get so anxious to see you and our little boys that I'm almost tempted to resign and trust to Providence and my own exertion for a living where I can have you and them with me. Whenever I get thinking on the subject, however, poverty, poverty begins to stare me in the face. And then I think of what I would do if you and our little ones should want for the necessities of life. Finally, it became too much, and I submitted my resignation uh, to my commanding officer. And uh, as it passed up the line, it was accepted by him and sent up to the commander of the Fourth Army. And, and eventually, it was accepted by the Secretary of War, uh, Jefferson Davis. And I left the Army as a captain. At the time I left the old Army as a captain, I was one of only 50 captains in the regular Army at the time. But I came home to St. Louis. I determined to make a living for Julia and the boys. Um, and Nellie came along shortly thereafter. Um, and so we started farming. I, bu I built a house. Uh, Colonel Dent had, had Whitehaven, where I built a log cabin. We called it Hard Scrabble. Um, uh, Julia had actually been given some slaves. Uh, we didn't farm with the slaves. I was—I actually was given one slave on my own, but I freed him in 1858. He stayed with me uh, through the war, Bill. But I—I I freed him. I'm afraid I wasn't cut out to be a farmer. We had uh, bad weather. For the first two years, uh, uh, we, the crop failed. Um, I was unable to make a living at farming. I could one thing I could do is is cut wood and sell firewood in St. Louis. We had a lot of wood on the property, and I would cut wood, and especially in the winter. Luckily, I had my old army coat, and I could put on my old army coat go downtown in St. Louis. It's about six miles, but I could call, call a wagon firewood down and sell it on the street corners. Um, and the colder it got, the more people would buy my firewood. Um, we were able to make a living. Although one Christmas I had to pawn my, my, my pocket watch in order to get money to buy presents for Julia and the boys. But we succeeded. We managed. Uh, one day I was standing selling firewood in a snowstorm, and a man came by that I had known at the military academy. He had been president of a bank in St. Louis that had recently failed. Uh, we shared memories of the old army, and, and we both had some setbacks and some reversals, and so we compared those reversals. Uh, it was Tecumseh Sherman, uh, who I would meet later on. Our paths would cross again after, after that day in St. Louis. Finally, I, I took a job collecting rents in St. Louis. 
with a man named Boggs, but I was really not cut out to hound people for rent money, and I um, wasn't, wasn't making any money doing that. My father had a, a branch of his leather store in Galena, Illinois, and my two brothers had been running that store. I had vowed after working in the ta tannery that I would never work for my father again, particularly in the leather business, but at that point I had no choice. I took the job. My brothers were ill, and they needed somebody to run the store, and so we moved to Galena in 1860, and I we rented a little house on the side of the hill, and I worked as a clerk in the store, and in, at one of the one of the young lawyers who was across the street uh, didn't have much business, but he used to like to come into the store, and we would I would I would tell him stories of the Mexican War and other adventures in the old army. John Rollins was his name. Finally, in April of 61, Fort Sumter was fired on, and every town in the North came to life as people wanted to raise an army, raise a company of men, a hundred men, all to be set to Springfield to fight in this war. And they needed to do it quickly because the war was only going to last 90 days. And we needed to get down there so that we could share in the glory as well. I had been in the Army and I had been in combat and I really had no interest other than the fact that I felt it was my duty to my country, having been trained by my country to be a soldier, that I should, should fight if they, if they had something for me to do. I presided over the meeting that night. I'm not much of a public speaker and I didn't say anything, but John Rollins got up and gave such, a, such an exciting speech that I told him I would almost sign up as a private just to go off and fight like he wanted me to. Nobody else would take those men to St. Louis or to Springfield, and I agreed to do that. And I went to Springfield. Uh, they found a few things for me to do, filling out forms that I knew how to fill out, having been in the Army. And I worked in the state capitol for a few weeks for the Secretary of State. But it then became apparent that I needed to go back into the Army, and I needed to secure a commission. Having retired as one of the 50 captains in the United States Army, I uh, felt that probably my, my skills were best suited to the rank of Brigadier General. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there was actually some logic to that when I, when I did it, but I, I set out to secure a commission. The first place I went was to my home state of Ohio, where I talked to the commander of all the Ohio forces, um, George Britton McClellan. Uh, General McClellan had been in the Army, uh, in the old Army, along with me. And I'm afraid some of the rumors about uh, my resignation had followed me there. I sat in General McClellan's outer office for two days, and he never saw me. So I came back. Eventually, my congressman uh, secured a position for me as a colonel in the 21st Illinois which was the unit that no one else wanted to command. And I agreed to take over the, the command of the 21st Illinois. And, uh, and they became a very respectable fighting unit, as far as I'm concerned. Eventually, I was commissioned as a brigadier general of volunteers. Um, and in the way that the Army works, my commission as general was dated before my commission as colonel. So for the purposes of rank, I was actually a general before I was a colonel. <laughs> it's army logic that we all know and love so much. I set off for, uh, for uh, 
Missouri. A lot of fighting went on in Missouri early in the war particularly. My first battle was at the Battle of Florida, Missouri. And I led men up a hill, the top of the, over the top of the hill, we knew that there was there were a Confederate, a Confederate camp. It's the first time I had ever led men into battle. And as I walked to the top of the hill, I could feel my heart moving up in my throat to where I could hardly breathe by the time we got to the top of the hill with the fear that had gripped me. When we went over the top of the hill and I looked down, I saw that the Confederates had abandoned their camp. They were gone. And I realized that they were as afraid of me as I was of them. <laughs> and I will have to tell you honestly that after that day and after I went over that hill in Florida, I was never again afraid in battle. And it was uh, I, realizing your enemy is as afraid of you is perhaps the best thing you can have when you're in war. Uh, my first major uh, conflict was at the Battle of Belmont in southern Missouri, down on the boot heel. Um, we, again, attacked the Confederate camp. The Confederates withdrew almost immediately to Columbus, Kentucky, which is across the river. It was the Gibraltar of the Mississippi at that point. And my men then uh, got out of control, and they started looting the camp, and they started taking all kinds of things that the Confederates had and didn't notice, and I didn't notice either, that the Confederates had come back across and had cut us off from the gunboats that had brought us down the river and we had to fight our way back from the camp just to get back on the gunboats. I was the last one on the boat, and it, it, they'd already taken up the ramp to get on the boat. And there's a very steep bank at that point that led down to where the boat was. And luckily, I had a good horse. My horse got to the top of the bank and sat down, and we slid down <laughs> the bank. <laughs> And we got to the bottom of the bank, and my horse walked up on the boat, and we got on the boat together, and we were safe. I went almost immediately to the captain's uh, <laughs> quarters and laid down for a minute, and just to rest. I was only there for a few minutes, and as I raised my head to get up, a bullet penetrated the side of the boat and hit the pillow where my head had been laying as I was raising my head up. So I guess luck was on my side. Not so much in the Battle of Belmont, but it was, uh, both sides I think scored the Battle, <coughs> Battle of Belmont as a, as a victory for either side. At that point, I was simply glad to get my men out of there without any further losses. The war went on. Um, we fought in, uh, in the February of 1862. We went up the Tennessee River and captured Fort Henry. Captured is probably too strong a word. Fort, the defenders of Fort Henry were standing knee-deep in water by the time our gunboats got there. And it didn't take much convincing to get them to get out of Fort Henry. But they moved <coughs> to Fort Donaldson on the Cumberland River. And that was a little more of, a, of an obstacle. Uh, we, we managed to conquer Fort Donaldson. Um, odd thing happened on the, during that battle. Uh, and we we'd laid siege to the fort for a few days, and I went over to talk to Admiral Foote, who was commanding the, the uh, gunboats that were on the Cumberland River at the time, and I went, went over to see him. We finished our conversation, and I was a pipe smoker, always had been a pipe smoker, and, my, and 
uh, Admiral Foote didn't have any tobacco, pipe tobacco. And he said, you want a cigar? Okay, I took a cigar instead. And I was riding back to join the Army, and an artist from Harper's Weekly saw me ride by with a cigar in my mouth, and he drew my picture with a cigar in my mouth. And the next week, after Fort Donaldson fell, uh, my picture appeared in Harper's Weekly with a cigar, and I, the next week I received 10,000 boxes of cigars, <laughs> grateful citizens, and I was a cigar smoker ever, ever since. At, at the Battle of Fort Donaldson, uh, the two primary commanders had slipped out and left the command of the fort to Simon Bolivar Buckner, who was a friend of mine in the old army. In fact, when I came back from, from the West Coast, before I went to see Julia, I landed in New York City without any money. I was out of the army and I didn't have any money at all, and General Buckner had guaranteed my bills at the hotel until I could pay him back. Well, the next time General Buckner's path and I crossed uh, was at Fort Donaldson as he defended Fort Donaldson. Uh, he sent out a letter asking for the terms under which I would accept uh, surrender, and I wrote back that I would take nothing but unconditional and complete surrender, and immediate surrender, and I intended to move on his works. He wrote back that that was a ungracious, but he had no term, no choice but to accept the terms. When we met to sign, I offered him the money back that he had borrowed from me for, that he had lent me for in New York City, but he didn't accept it at the time. General Buckner and I would see each other again many years later. Fought the battles, the Battle of Shiloh, Battle of Shiloh, I came on a clearing uh, that had been fought. It was on the second day of the battle. We were in possession of it, but the Confederates had made repeated charges over it the day before. It was so strewn with dead bodies that it would have been possible to walk across the clearing in any direction, stepping only on the dead without a foot ever touching the ground. And it was at the Battle of Shiloh that I realized, and I think most Americans realized, the war was not going to be a short but it was going to be a long and expensive and bloody proposition, and of course it was. We moved on to capture Vicksburg the next year, um, and the Battle of Chattanooga uh, was, was one where we took both Lookout Mountain, Seminary Ridge, um, and it was by November of 1863, uh, I guess I was probably the most successful general in the West, at least in the Western theater, probably in the United States Army. And in February of 1864, Congress reauthorized the rank of Lieutenant General. Uh, the only person other than, that had ever served in that position up to that date was George Washington. They created it with the understanding that President Lincoln would appoint me as Lieutenant General of the Army and Commander of the entire Union Army, which at that time was the largest army on the face of the earth. I reported in March to Washington. I actually, Fred was with me. We, uh, we checked into the Willard Hotel, and the, the clerk was not very impressed with generals in those days. They had been a bunch of generals come and go at the Willard. I signed in. I asked if he had a room. He said, we probably have something up in the attic. And uh, I said, that's fine. And I signed the registry, and when he looked down and saw who I was, 
He said he just remembered that something else had opened up on the first floor, and he would be happy for me to get that. I checked in uh, and left my bags and walked over to the White House that evening, uh, knocked on the door, they let me in. The, the president was giving a reception that night, and we'd never met. I didn't really know the president uh, other than seeing pictures of him, but they walked me into the East Room, and I walked in, and there was a huge party going on. The president came over and shook my hand and introduced me to the crowd. And then <coughs> I'm about five, eight and a half, and the president was six, four. And so the president asked me to stand on a settee next to him. <laughs> and for the next two hours, I shook hands with all of the people who walked through the line. Um, I was not really an outgoing person, so it was a little bit of a difficulty for me. Uh, the next day I received my commission as Lieutenant General, and immediately, upon the advice of a number of people, including Tecumseh Sherman, I left Washington and went out <laughs> into the field, uh, made my headquarters with General Meade, who was a commander of the Army of the Potomac. Um, General Meade was in fact in charge of the Army of the Potomac, but I was next to him. My tent was next to him, I was above him. And we began to make plans for the summer of 1864 and what we would do to finally, once and for all, engage the Confederates and end the war. And I knew that the only way the war was going to be ended was when we killed enough of them that they couldn't replace them. Some people referred to it as the unfortunate arithmetic. But it was such that the Confederates had no more replacements. And the Union Army did. We had more money, more material, and more men, and we could, we could beat them down if we could kill them, which meant that we had to engage them. And it meant, of course, Robert E. Lee was in charge of the Confederate forces. What it meant was we had to engage them away from Richmond, keep them away from Richmond, because once they got to Richmond, it was going to be a siege. And a siege, we didn't want to lay siege to Richmond. We wanted to engage them. And of course, the first place we engaged them was at the Battle of the Wilderness. We crossed the Rapidan on May 4th, and uh, by May 5th, we were fully engaged with the enemy. Um, we fought two days at, at, at the Battle of the Wilderness, but we really stayed engaged for really for the next 30 days or so as we moved south. May 11th, 1864, the Honorable E.M. Stanton, Secretary of War. We have now entered the sixth day of very hard fighting. The result of this time has been very much in our favor. Our losses have been very heavy, as well as those of the enemy. I think the loss of the enemy must be greater. We've taken over 5,000 prisoners in battle, while he has taken from us only a few stragglers. I propose to fight it out on this line if it takes all summer. U.S. Grant, Lieutenant General Commanding. Well, that line that I proposed to fight it out if it took all summer uh, caught the imagination of the public, sort of like my demand for unconditional surrender did. And um, in some ways it haunted me because the next fight, the next 30 days of fighting that we did were some of the hardest and the, and the most costly that we had in the entire war. Um, they culminated primarily with the Battle of Cold Harbor, 
um, where my men attacked a Confederate position, and estimates are that we took between five and 7,000 casualties uh, in a period of perhaps a half an hour. I've always regretted making the last charge at Cold Harbor because it came to nothing. Shortly after that, we escaped. We managed to slip free of General Lee and uh, slipped south of Richmond over the James, and we were prepared to take Petersburg. The general that was commanding hesitated because of the losses we'd had at Cold Harbor. And by hesitating, General Lee found us, uh, moved his men to Petersburg, and the siege then set in at the end of June that lasted until the next, the end of March, 1st of April of 65. Um, by the time the siege broke, and we, General Lee tried to escape Petersburg, uh, Richmond was abandoned, and General Lee was trying to get around us down to North Carolina, where General Johnston had been fighting with General Sherman. Uh, but we kept going west along the Appomattox River until at Appomattox Courthouse, uh, General Lee finally saw that it was useless to, to fight further, and he surrendered. I served as Commanding General of the Army received a fourth star um, for a short time, a contested time. I was Secretary of War. In 1868, I was elected President of the United States. I know that a lot of people have criticized my presidency, but I, I am proud of the fact that during my presidency, the Transcontinental Railroad was completed, uh, the first national park was declared, and the uh, first civil service law was passed. After the war, after the, my presidency, Julie and I traveled. We went, actually went all the way around the world. Uh, it took us two and a half years. Did, met the crowned heads of Europe. We went to Egypt. Uh, we went uh, to Persia. We went to India, China. Uh, I wanted to go to Australia, but I couldn't find a way to get there. So we ended up back in the United States. And by that time, when I got back to New York City, uh, my son, Buck, was in uh, an investment firm with a man named Ferdinand Ward. Uh, it was called Grant and Ward, and Buck is my Ulysses Jr. I was, I guess, the name partner in the firm, but I really, I, I was not a financial man. I didn't, I would come into the office and sign papers once in a while, but my expertise did not lie in finance. Uh, Ferdinand Ward was a young titan of Wall Street and was, was able to uh, make great returns on investments for people, and a lot of people entrusted their money to us. And the one Saturday, I came into the office, and they explained that Ferdinand Ward was gone, and all of the money was gone. And in fact, what had happened was he was taking people's money and paying back the investors, but not really making the returns that he claimed to be making a pyramid scheme. And we were. We had lost everything. I came home that night, and we did not have enough money to buy supper. Uh, Julia said that she had some money hidden away, and, and she found it. We were able to pay enough to buy supper that night, and we, we had some friends who lent us money, but we had nothing. Everything was gone. We sold. We had several houses that we sold. I sold all my war souvenirs to William Vanderbilt. Um, he also loaned me $250,000. Up until that point, I had, I had resisted 
writing my memoirs. I had no intention of doing so. I thought that there had been enough books about the war and no one was interested in what I had to say. But my friend, Samuel Clemens, convinced me that I should write my memoirs. And after talking to Century Magazine and writing a few articles, uh, Samuel gave me a, a contract and I agreed to write my memoirs. On the day that I agreed, the day that I signed the contract, I took a bite of a peach and my throat burned like someone had poured <coughs> hot lead down it. Before long, it became apparent that I had tongue cancer, inoperable tongue cancer. In fact, my doctor uh, had another doctor look at the results and without telling him who it was, and the doctor said, well, this man is going to die, and soon. He told him who it was, and he said, well, then President Grant is going to die, and soon. <laughs> and I began to write my memoirs as fast as I could, hoping that I could finish them and provide some money to my family before I died. Which brings me back to the porch. I came up here to Mount McGregor this summer because the heat in New York City was so oppressive that it was very difficult to, to write and to be comfortable. By now, I have great difficulty swallowing. I can't lay down to sleep. Um, the doctor will ask if I want pain medicine, but pain medicine clouds my head and I can't finish my memoirs and I, so I have to write uh, with the pain. Uh, once word got out of my disease, people started coming up, old soldiers would come up. Sometimes they would just stand at attention out in the yard. Um, old comrades and foes like General Buckner and his new wife came, uh, Pete Longstreet, um, others that we had, who we had served together or uh, with um, came to stay with me. Um, I finished my memoirs and I finished them this way. I guess I should explain that when I accepted the Republican nomination for president in 1868, the country, although hostilities had ceased or there were no longer w armies at war, the country was far from at peace. Uh, there was violence in the South. There were still threats of, of retaliation and retribution. The South and the North uh, were having a great deal of difficulty getting along. And in my acceptance speech, I closed with the phrase, let us have peace. I feel we're on the eve of a new era when there's to be great harmony between the federal and confederate. I cannot stay to be a living witness to the correction of this prophecy, but I feel it within me that it is to be so. The universally kind feeling expressed for me at this time, when it was supposed that each day had pro would prove my last, seemed to me to be the beginning of the answer to let us have peace.
Thank you. General, uh, could we in, could you take a few questions? Certainly, I'd be happy to. Yes, sir. I'm sorry? On a percentage basis, we were, uh, General Lee actually had a higher higher loss of casualties, that, of men lost to men engaged as I did. Um, I, I can't give you the exact figures, but I can tell you that, that he lost more men percentage-wise than I did. I'm particularly interested in financial history and the structures around that. When did pensions for soldiers and presidents start? Started with me. I thought there was something. Congress passed a law. Congress had a bill before it to pass a pension for me after my financial difficulties. And they, the last day, uh, when it was 1884, or the beginning of 1885, when the new president was going to be sworn in, the old Congress uh, you know, the Congress changes at a different time than the President does, and the last day they passed the bill to, to give me a pension. Um, and that was the first, the first Army pension. In fact, the, not General Winfield Scott stayed on as, as General of the Army uh, long after, he was three, well, weighed over 300 pounds and had to have two men help him onto his horse, but he couldn't retire because there was no pension. He had nothing, nothing to live on if he retired. If he did retire. Yes, sir. I wonder if you could explain your relationship with Thomas during the Battle of Nashville. <laughs> well, um, at the time, I was I was very angry with General Thomas. Um, I had ordered him to attack the enemy, and he had not done so. As it turns out, General Thomas had good reason not to. Uh, the weather had switched. Uh, it was it was very cold. It had frozen. It was making travel very difficult, and it was going back and forth between freezing and thawing. Very difficult to move an army at the time. I was on my way out there to relieve General Thomas of command when, in fact, he he made the attack uh, on the Confederates, a very successful attack. But um, General Thomas was always known as Old Slow Trot, and uh, and he was cautious. Perhaps not as cautious as General McClellan, but he was nonetheless <laughs> cautious. But he was also the Rock of Chickamauga, so we'll never forget General Thomas for that. Yes, sir. Uh, you said you sold your memorabilia to uh, William Vanderbilt. What did Mr. Vanderbilt do with your he, mementos? He gave it to the Smithsonian, or to the Library of Congress. It's all there. He had, he had no he, he had actually. It was security for a loan, but he had no intention of making me pay the loan back. So, I he he got them. He wanted to make sure they didn't fall into hands, into private hands, or get separated. So they were all eventually transferred to the Library of Congress. <laughs> Which, if I can step out of character for a minute, we at what a few years ago we got to visit the Library of Congress and see Grant's final galley proofs of his memoirs with pencil marks on them that he had made in his, and the additions and corrections, and we got to see those, as well as his diploma from West Point, and, um, all kinds of stuff, pretty exciting stuff. Yes, could you enlighten
enlighten us a little bit about why you found it necessary to issue order number 11 to the chairs of Tennessee. I, uh, What's the question? The, 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 the question is on order number 11, <coughs> expelling cotton factors, but, but essentially expelling Jews from the district in Mississippi, uh, which I issued. And uh, I apologize for that order and rescinded it three weeks later after uh, ordered to do so by Washington. But I'm afraid I have, uh, I have no, I can make no justification for the order. I, uh, it was the, the, it was really a matter of trying to expel cotton factors who were, who were in fact selling, uh, allowing money to come into the Confederacy. Turns out that those cotton factors were mostly uh, Jewish merchants, but my order was ill-conceived and ill-worded, and I, and I can't make any anything for it other than the fact that I rescinded it three weeks later, under pressure. Yes. Tell me about your children, what do they do? Well, I had uh, four children. Uh, Fred became a general in the United States Army, graduated from the military academy and became a general. Buck, the second son, was uh, uh, um, a, an investment banker. Uh, Nellie awesome. married a financial man who was uh, was responsible in large part for a gold panic that took place shortly before my administration. He was a, a, we thought, Julia and I thought, and we were right, that he was trying to buy influence and, and, uh, and insinuate himself into the higher ranks of government. He was, uh, they moved to Europe and stayed there for a while. And I'm a terrible father because I've just forgotten what my fourth son did. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's been 160 years. <laughs> <laughs> Too many cigars. <laughs> you and Rick Perry. Yeah. <laughs> Rick Perry's a brother who was involved with the Indians as a um, um, Indian agent who wasn't all that uh, straight and narrow. Hmm. Is that true or not? I, you know, I don't know that. I, 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 I lose track of his siblings. The only two siblings I really know about are the two that he w that were in Galena when he was when he went up there. And that's, I, I, I just I, I have yet to read anything that really gave me good definitive stuff on his siblings. So, sorry. Is it true that when you were elected president, the uh, town of Galena? sent you off and you told them don't change anything till I come back and you <laughs> never came back. <laughs> <laughs> that may well be. I was, I, you know, in 1864, President Lincoln sent somebody out to find out if I wanted to run for president in 64 because it, after my appointment as, as Lieutenant General, he was afraid that I was, I was, I had political ambitions and I told him that all I wanted to do was run, to return to Galena and be elected mayor so that I could get my sidewalk fixed. <laughs> but uh, I, that may have been why Galena is still in quite in pristine condition. <laughs> After Shiloh, General, was it is it true that you almost resigned uh, from the army? Well, yes, because General Halleck removed me from command right after that. Um, General Halleck claimed that I was not obeying orders and had not corresponded with him as to what was happening. He removed me from command. It was an entirely unjust accusation. What had happened was that there was a Confederate that had, had taken a position in the telegraph office and he wasn't conveying my messages. I was sending my messages and General Halleck wasn't getting it. 
But I also think there was some jealousy about, of General Halleck by that time because regardless of how ragged the victory at Shiloh had been, it was an important victory for the Union in, in April of 62. And uh, he removed me from command and he took over command and led the Army valiantly from Shiloh to Corinth, a distance of 30 miles, and it only took him 30 days to do it. So. <laughs> but General Halleck and I always got along. We, I mean, even though he removed me from command, and I felt at that point that if there wasn't anything to do, I would resign. Um, he and I never, we've, we always spoke pleasantly about one another. Harry, okay. I want to thank, thank you for very Great. That's Again, great. All thanks, right. Thanks. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Next month will be our Nevins Friedman Award uh, winner. That will be Will Green. He will be speaking on the Bermuda 100 because that will finish off the uh, tour from last year. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>